Welcome to the January 2018 edition of RehabCast. I'm your host, Ford Box. Now, we're on episode 10 of this, the official podcast of the Archives of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation. As 2018 dawns, I hope you're thinking about ACRM 2018 in Dallas coming up September 28th. Now, 2017's conference was, of course, here in Atlanta, where I work and where the rehab cast comes together. Now, it turns out we're not done with rehab conferences here in the ATL. I'm going to shout out for the next big rehab conference to visit our fair city. That's Physiatry 18 from the Association of Academic Physiatrists. Physiatry 18 will be happening here at the Hyatt Regency downtown February 13th through the 17th. Now, if you'd like to take a tour of Shepherd Center while you're in town, drop me a line. Now, later in the show, you're going to be hearing from Dr. Lynn Warabay from the University of Pittsburgh about her work on improving wheelchair transfer technique via web-based training. But first up, let's take a look at the news. It's rare that medical headlines live up to their hype. But the results announced by Ionis Pharmaceuticals and Roche in December about its investigational Huntington's disease drug are certainly a scientific breakthrough, if not yet a medical one. The drug is currently named Ionis HTTRX. I managed to get in touch with Dr. Edward Wild, one of the study's investigators, on the day the news was released. Dr. Wild is a consultant neurologist at Britain's National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery in London's Queen Square. He also does scientific work at University College London's Institute of Neurology and the Huntington's Disease Center there. Ed, what is Ionis HTTRX? So the drug is called an antisense oligonucleotide. It's a single strand of chemically altered synthetic DNA. And the DNA sequence has been designed so that the drug sticks directly to the mRNA message molecule that comes from the Huntington gene. So that's the sort of intermediate step between the gene and the toxic Huntington protein. The gene is photocopied to make the message molecule. The message molecule is then used to make the protein. And in Huntington's disease, that protein is toxic. So the drug sticks to the message molecule. And once it's stuck to it, it tells the cell to delete or break down the message molecule. And as a result of that, less of the protein is made. And what have your results shown so far? Apart from the fact that the drug was safe and well tolerated was that the drug had successfully achieved its aim of lowering the toxic protein. What we don't know yet is whether that will actually result in clinical improvement. We have every right to expect that it will and that it will also prevent the onset or delay the onset or progression of Huntington's disease. But that has to be tested in future trials. This really is a huge moment for the entire HD community And I know you've worked on this personally for a long time. Spinraza using the same technique is proving therapeutic in spinal muscular atrophy. So the hopes that this drug will translate into clinical usefulness certainly appear justified. What does this moment mean for you? For me personally, this is the culmination of several years working on this particular program. And it's certainly the most important thing that's come from my research into Huntington's disease, which I've been doing now for 12 years. For our team, led by Professor Sarah Tabrizi at UCL, this is probably six or seven years' work um, that's led to this point. And for the wider team that developed the drug in the first place, it's over a decade of hard work. And and it's important to reiterate that a, a 
trial like this um, results from you know a, at least a decade of work by hundreds of people in lots of different organisations around the world, as well as the selfless contributions of the patients. On an even more personal note, many of the people that I know in the Huntington's disease community are friends of mine now after 12 years working on this disease, and many of them are from HD families themselves. It's not too unusual for people from HD families to want to contribute directly by becoming scientists that research Huntington's disease. Um, so I have several friends who are scientists and also advocates and in 12 years in working with this community you meet a lot of uh, people and make personal friends with people who have come into contact with this devastating disease. So my heart is overflowing with joy today um, about this breakthrough for these people that mean a lot to me personally. So what's next? We need to run a phase three clinical trial to see whether lowering the Huntington protein produces sustained clinical improvement. Can we help people to get better? Can we slow the progression of Huntington's disease? That will need to be a large trial, and uh, we expect an announcement from Roche um, in the near future about their plans for future clinical work in this um, program towards getting the drug licensed. Once the drug is licensed, if it works, of course, we'll need to then um, make sure that we can get it as quickly as possible to all the people who could potentially benefit from it. And after that, we'll then need to figure out whether we can, uh, or rather, we, can, we need to figure out what the best way will be of getting the drug into people who have the mutation in their genes but don't have symptoms yet. And that's really the, um, the, the goal that we're aiming for, is to actually be able to prevent the onset of Huntington's disease. Now, Dr. Wild, this drug has to be injected into the CSF via LP. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that's going to work practically and would there be a role, perhaps, for an intrathecal device? As far as we know from other conditions in which multiple lumbar punctures are used to deliver drugs into the spinal fluid and into the nervous system, repeated lumbar punctures are, are very safe and tolerated. Needless to say, we'd like to do as few lumbar punctures as possible, and certainly there is the possibility of an implanted device and possibly a reservoir under the skin leading to a tube that would go into the spinal fluid, and we could then give um, pulsed injections um, into the spine without necessarily having to do uh, a lumbar puncture every uh, several weeks. Contrary perhaps to popular perception, uh, despite the fact that Huntington's is a progressive, ultimately deadly disease process, people with HD do come into contact with the rehabilitation world through a variety of avenues and can sometimes benefit from services from a variety of disciplines to help improve quality of life in the short term especially with sudden declines in motor and behavioral function. The dark side of this new class of antisense oligonucleotides is their cost. Spinraza for spinal muscular atrophy is breaking banks. Uh, this is from a recent Boston Globe feature. But just as Spinraza is the story of this new age of invention, bringing hope where there was none, it is also the story of the shadow that follows that dream. These drugs can be hard to obtain, no matter how desperately needed. Uh, the Englishes, uh, this is a family that was discussed over the course of this Boston Globe feature, their quest for Spinraza took many months, and they would travel some 2,400 miles from their home in Orem, Utah, to Massachusetts General Hospital for the tests that would help qualify Colin to receive his first dose. And these remarkable medicines often carry 
a stunning price. Spinraza cost $750,000 per patient in the first year alone. It's $375,000 annually after the first year. That's a sum large enough to give any insurer pause. Hundreds of drugs likely to command similarly stratospheric price tags are in development or headed to market. The era of the $1 million drug is right at hand. The Globe asks, is this a future that American medicine can afford, or can we afford not to? The economics of these drugs only work with those sky-high prices the way things are figured right now. As the Globe explains, the sea change that made rare diseases a winning business proposition dates to the early 1980s, when prodded by the mobilization of families of desperate patients, Congress passed the Orphan Drug Act. The act, which President Reagan signed into law in 1983, gave companies major incentives to develop drugs for conditions that affected no more than 200,000 Americans. The inducements included giving companies tax credits and the exclusive right to market their new drugs for seven years. The strategy worked. Before 1983, only 34 orphan disease drugs had been approved in the United States. Today, more than 650 have won approval. There are an estimated 7,000 rare diseases that all told affect roughly 1 in 10 U.S. residents. And the pipeline of new treatments is gushing. Biotechs are developing more than 560 medicines for rare diseases, according to a 2016 report by the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America and the ALS Association. We're going to need a bigger bank account. And now for some medical news that is a very long time coming. Stroke and Vascular Neurology, an open access BMJ journal that launched in 2015, has a very interesting new randomized trial on a quite ancient supplement. This study is worth your attention if you treat stroke patients. Of course, the search is on for decades now, really, for any effective drug that can salvage infarcted brain tissue. No matter how good we get at treating ischemic strokes in the initial hours after they happen, with everything from TPA to endovascular retrieval, some brain is always lost. While so far we haven't seen a successful new drug make it to market for the purpose of enhancing brain recovery, Chinese researchers are now conducting high-quality research into a mainstay of traditional Chinese medicine, ginkgo biloba. This is a multi-center study involving five Chinese hospitals that enrolled 348 patients in the first week following ischemic stroke and then randomized them to either ginkgo plus aspirin or aspirin alone for six months. The results are extremely rehabilitation relevant with significant gains in cognitive and physical function seen in the ginkgo extract group, which are reflected in significant NIH stroke scale scores, uh, the Barthel index, and Rankin score improvements. This is the second quality trial supporting ginkgo post-stroke, and it's interesting to note, as discussed in the study, that the dementia research with ginkgo is much more rocky than what we're seeing with stroke. The study is titled Ginkgo Biloba Extract Improved Cognitive and Neurological Function of Acute Ischemic Stroke, a Randomized Controlled Trial. Again, check it out. It's open access. 
In still more fascinating research out of China, there's a novel nerve transfer technique reported in the New England Journal of Medicine that helped a series of patients with spastic hemiparesis who received the surgery at Huashan Hospital in Shanghai. The investigative surgery was conducted on young stroke patients capping out at age 45 with spastic arm weakness but not total paralysis due to stroke, brain injury, or CP. They were no longer improving after at least five years of rehab. The technique involves contralateral C7 nerve transfer from the non-paralyzed side to the paralyzed side in order to engage the unimpaired cerebral hemisphere. The 18 patients in the surgery group underwent direct suturing of the cut nerves of the contralateral C7 nerve to the C7 nerve on the paralyzed side through a prespinal route. Following the procedure, they received rehabilitation. A group of 18 match control patients received rehab therapy alone. The effects of cutting the C7 nerve contralateral to the paralysis were quite mild and patients significantly benefited from the improvement in the paralyzed limb as measured on the Fugel-Meyer and modified Ashworth scales at 12 months. Now, an accompanying editorial questions whether the improvement really represents CNS change. The Mayo Clinic editorialists write that an alternative hypothesis to explain the functional improvement is that there was reduction in spasticity caused by the C7 neurotomy on the paralyzed side. The neurotomy may have led to a reduction in limb spasticity and improved function through the normal motor pathways of the C5, C6, C8, and T1 nerves, and the effect may have been augmented by rehabilitation. The C7 neurotomy itself, associated with an immediate reduction in spasticity, represents a major advance for some patients with brain injury who have poor function in spasticity. A reduction in spasticity may also result in improved efficacy of the damaged motor cortex, an effect that may be enhanced by ongoing PT. An improvement in function at 10 months cannot be readily explained as being predominantly a result of the contralateral nerve transfers because nerves do not regenerate that quickly, fully, or consistently. They advised the Chinese research group to compare the results to a group undergoing C7 neurotomy alone, without the nerve transfer, along with rehabilitation. And note that the Chinese are really the only folks that can do this comparison given the high volume going through their center in Shanghai. It'll be interesting to see whether Shanghai takes up the gauntlet throne in Minnesota. And now it's time for our featured interview. Joining me now on the Rehab Cast is Dr. Lynn Warabe, whose latest study is in the journal's January issue. It's titled, Investigating the Efficacy of Web-Based Transfer Training on Independent Wheelchair Transfers Through Randomized Controlled Trials. Dr. Warabe is Research Assistant Professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the University of Pittsburgh, as well as a research scientist at the Human Engineering Research Laboratories there. Dr. Warbe is a practicing physical therapist as well, giving her great insight into the practical needs of clinicians and patients. And Dr. Warbe, uh, in much of your work, it centers around wheelchair use, in particular problems related to wheelchair use, improving technique, addressing problems with biomechanics and adaptive equipment. Am I right in all that? Yeah, I think that's a good summary. 
Now your study looks at improving transfer training for folks who needed a wheelchair, not necessarily new wheelchair users. In some cases, you're looking at folks who are decades out uh, but can still improve. Uh, so what is the problem you're getting at here? Yeah, so it's kind of twofold. So one is we're recognizing that there are a lot of wheelchair users out there that aren't using what we would consider to be a good technique, and that's based on kind of biomechanics studies that we've done in the past. And so our question sort of came to how do we get this type of training to these folks um, in the context of the current rehab, decreasing lengths of stay, and access to providers that might have the knowledge to do this training. So that's sort of where this web-based intervention grew from. And it's a really big problem. You've certainly done other work and published in the area of repetitive use injuries, in particular the shoulder related to transfers. And that's, of course, not entirely preventable. But in many situations, people have not ever learned the best technique for their body biomechanics. And it's kind of surprising just how many people were not adequately trained by a professional. In many cases, it seems like over half of wheelchair users. Yeah, and I think it's a combination of things. So whether it's that their um, rehab professionals are knowing what to train them in in terms of some of these component skills that we're talking about, but also that people are, I think, more and more sick when they're getting to rehab. So whether they have kind of the strength and coordination and motor function to be able to achieving some of these techniques when they're leaving, um, and then what kind of access they have once they're outpatient to resources to help them with this. Spinal cord folks are getting a little more training than most, but even there, it's often less than 50%. I think you quote 42% getting adequate therapy. In particular, there seems to be some kind of bias going on in folks with amputations and MS not really getting adequate training or access to the training they need. Uh, veterans with amputations, that one was astounding. Uh, you quote only 18% getting appropriate training, and they're, and they're veterans with uh, supposed access. MS and a manual wheelchair, 17.7%. So what would explain all this? So I think some of it is just sort of how rehab is structured. So you might have MS and you may never have gone through a rehab program, whereas you have like a traumatic spinal cord injury and you're going to go to rehab and get more of these focused interventions. So I think that these are sort of two populations we've identified that could benefit from more focus in this area. And not just transfers, but wheelchair skills as well. So... Now, your study is a convenient sample, and in this case, the convenience was you guys accomplishing this work over the course of a couple of wheelchair competitions. Tell us about that. Sure. So we collected at the National Veterans Wheelchair Games and National Disabled Veterans Winter Sports Clinic, um, and they're both really large wheelchair athlete-focused competitions. So from a research perspective, they bring the benefit of having a lot of wheelchair users that we can run through studies to kind of um, gather that sample quickly. But certainly they're a more active population, so possibly leads to limitations in terms of generalizability. Um, however, based on their activeness, we would tend to think that this sort of overestimates things rather than underestimating because they're likely more independent and active in getting out of the house. And you got good recruitment. Uh, 71 is good for rehab studies in my book. And indeed, you got some really good results, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, but first, if you could put your PT hat on and briefly walk us through the highlights of a good wheelchair transfer. Yeah, so there's kind of three things that we go through. The first is setup, so making sure that the wheelchair is set up where you want it. So it's close to the surface you're going to. If you're in a manual chair, you've got kind of an angle so that you're not going over the rear wheel. Um, it's a level transfer whenever possible. 
the next thing is looking at how their body is set up. So are they scooting forward in the chair? Are their feet on the floor, if possible, for a more stable base of support? Um, ideally, we like to see the hands gripping the edge or an armrest or part of the frame rather than being flat or in a fist. Uh, a lot of that comes back to our biomechanics studies that look at the shoulder. So we found that the shoulder biomechanics look better when the hands are in a more stable position. Um, and that they're reaching not too far out of their base of support. And then flight is the last component that we're looking at. So a good head-hips technique, a smooth landing, um, no falls, things like that are sort of the basics that we're looking for with the transfer. And, um, and so, so you are randomizing people, and it's either, you know, kind of traditional uh, in-person training, um, a wait list kind of comparison control group, and, of course, the active uh, study group is this web-based uh, module, which is about 60 minutes, and it's kind of mixed media, I gather, both some material to read and also some videos. Yeah, and the supplement for our article kind of has a couple screenshots of things, but we tried to make it a little bit more interactive so people just weren't reading static pages. Um, so they'll get a description of stuff. We also go into kind of the justification for why we're recommending different things, which we found sort of hit home for a lot of people in terms of, oh, these are the carpal tunnel symptoms I'm experiencing. Maybe my hand position is leading to that. Uh, we've built in some knowledge checks, so some quiz questions along the way to sort of reinforce concepts. And then also pictures and videos of wheelchair users that are doing things both correctly and non-correctly and asking people to sort of pick out and identify what was good and bad. Let's play a bit from one of those videos here. It is also important during flight to move your head down and away from the surface you are transferring to. This is often called using the head-hips relationship. This movement will make your transfer easier and decrease the amount of stress you are placing on your shoulders. To use the head-hips technique, lean forward. Think of getting your nose over your toes. Then, in one motion, move your head away from the surface you are transferring to as your hips move toward it. Landing is the end of this phase and the end of the transfer. During landing, your hips contact your destination transfer surface. Similar to flight, you want your landing to be smooth and well-controlled. You should not land with a thud. That can damage soft tissues. This is of particular concern if you don't have sensation in your buttocks. After your transfer, both hands should be on the transfer service to assist with stability. Now, your outcomes involve the transfer assessment instrument, and you're looking at folks pre-training, uh, directly after initial training and again one or two days later, which has to do with the fact that these wheelchair competitions were short events in themselves. Of course, you'd like to do longer follow-up, and I know you're working on that. Uh, the transfer assessment looks pretty straightforward. The assessments uh, are done in person, regardless of web or in-person training. Can you envision a way that that could be done online as well? Yeah, so I think that we're exploring that in terms of having some clinicians remotely look at videos currently, but we've also developed since this publication um, a self-report version that we're looking at the reliability of currently, so as a tool that users can do remotely, so maybe they don't need a clinician there, um, is reliability good enough that they can evaluate themselves. It sounds like you're heading down the road towards uh, an educational product that is practically useful. Uh, what's going to be the, the best way to get that out and distribute that product? Yeah, so right now we're focusing a lot on the different SCI model system centers. Um, but as part of this randomized control trial that we're doing, that's a question that we're hoping to answer. 
Um, so looking not only at do we improve transfers, but sort of how can we use online modules to provide this type of training? So how do we reach the right people? Um, how do we retain them to actually complete the training once we get to them? And is it having any effects? So that's kind of one of the questions that we're looking to answer um, in our trial. Now, we let on earlier that the results are impressive. Please go ahead and tell us what you found. Yeah, so what we did is we found um, good results with both the in-person and the web training looking at a pre-post uh, and no significant difference between the two. So we feel like the web training can produce comparable results to the in-person training. And then both of them we were seeing an improvement in tie score compared to our weightless control group. Very clearly supporting your hypothesis. Uh, now the new trial is set in the home. Uh, it's larger as well? It is. It's larger and it's national. Um, so people are doing it in their home and it's not restricted to spinal cord injury. So sort of anybody that uses a chair and uses a sitting pivot lateral scoot type transfer. Rehabcast listeners, the study is in recruitment now and you can go to upmc-sci.pit.edu slash transfers. And there you can check out the materials and you can refer potential subjects there as well. The people who did the best in the study had the lowest skills to start with, uh, so they had more room to improve. But there are a few of those folks to be found at a wheelchair competition. You speculate that uh, the general population might have more to gain than those folks, and thus the effects could be bigger. Yeah, and I think that the interesting part was that we found improvements independent of how old somebody was or how many years of experience they had. So there were people with 10, 20 years of wheelchair experience that were learning and improving their technique. So I think it speaks to there are some basics that people are kind of missing along the way, but also a really small, short intervention can have a positive impact. And is there evidence to suggest that folks uh, do lose skills uh, over time, kind of as, as perhaps adults do and with other degenerative conditions, kind of uh, their biomechanics uh, uh, get worse with time? I think that that's a good question. I'm not sure of any literature specific to that, um, but the transfer assessment instrument itself is designed to not sort of punish people for assistive device use. So even if somebody's needing a sliding board or something, maybe as they're getting older and losing some strength, um, they should still be able to use good technique to sort of optimize what they're able to do. Yeah, I'm just kind of wondering if, it, if it's something where folks need periodic uh, refreshers, perhaps, uh, like you might start out with a good uh, transfer technique, but maybe 10 years later might, might need a little bit of a boost. Yeah, and I think with sort of all motor learning things, a sort of brush up or tune up is useful in terms of reinforcing good technique and the reason for doing different things. Excellent. Uh, and of course, this study fits into with a whole, you know, kind of larger uh, movement in, in medicine as well in terms of making things uh, more efficient, less expensive, and utilizing uh, technologies that, that we have um, and uh, fit, fits nicely uh, uh, into that entire movement. And it'll be interesting to see how all these different lines of research or all sorts of different types of conditions beyond just rehabilitation as well uh, coalesce into something that's very practically uh, uh, usable seems like, you know, kind of we're in the very early stages where a lot of good stuff is, is being done, but, but uh, these individual projects are somewhat uh, siloed in, in a way that uh, it's uh, some rather inaccessible to both patients and clinicians who can't be generally aware of all the good projects that are out there. 
Right. And I think the other important thing to remember with a lot of web-based trainings is they're designed in part to be complementary rather than a replacement. So the other thing to take away from this is a 60-minute in-person training is effective at improving technique too. So as clinicians, you can also access the concepts in the training and use them within your session or build from this online module what you're doing in person. And like, it's not necessarily a replacement for that one-to-one training with a therapist where you get proper spotting and safety and things like that. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Warbay. And again, listeners, the new national web-based transfer training trial is enrolling now. You can find it again at upmc-sci.pit.edu slash transfers. Go check it out. That's it for the January 2018 Rehab Cast. Please tune in next month and please share the Rehab Cast with your colleagues. Thanks for listening.